You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. What goes into you living your best life? I want everyone that I know to live their best life. I know the Lord wants you to live at the highest um, most fruitful, most prosperous, grace-oriented, goodness-oriented life. Um, but one thing I know, I actually I know some things, and there won't, I want to talk about them today. I think it's really going to help us if uh, uh, what I'm feeling lands in our hearts. But I know some things that work against living your best life. And I want us to look at unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness. Because I think um, the Lord's Prayer is such a remarkable section of uh, a scripture. And it actually encourages us to believe that what goes on in heaven, all the good things that go on in heaven, all the positive, wonderful healing, blessings, prosperity, freedom, that what goes on in heaven could come on the earth. We could experience here and now some of the glorious aspects of that kind of life. But at the end of it, Jesus, uh, part of the prayer goes, and forgive us our debts. What's the rest of it? As we forgive um, our debtors, or one little boy said, um, forgive us our trash as uh, we forgive those who trash pass trash against us. The whole trespass thing is pretty, but it's more true than not, I think. But And then after that, Jesus again warns us about um, how unforgiveness can uh, really, really hinder our lives. So he gives us amazing prayer. He gives these amazing promises. But he gives only that one, one little caveat, that one little warning, and it's about unforgiveness. And I think it's much more um, prevalent amongst us. I've actually seen some in my own heart this week I want to talk about a little bit. Um, but unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Uh, bitterness and resentment are primary components in unforgiveness. Our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our resentment hinders the grace and goodness of God to flood and fill our lives. So this is what I want us to think about this morning to see if we can break through into a wider place uh, in God. How many of you want that? How many of you want better than what you have? Well, it's there. It's available. I don't know anyone who is living at the highest expression of God's mercy and favor and grace and goodness in their lives. And um, let's go for it. So one of the things I wanted to do, we've been studying the gospel of John, and uh, we have some other ideas later in the fall about some things we're going to do a little bit differently. And um, But we're continuing to jump all over this book of John. And so on the overhead, we have John 12, 1 through 7, we're going to look at the life of a woman named Mary. 
Um, so I'm going to read this. You want to read with me? You don't have to, but if you'd like. That's, that's not good enough. Let's read this together. <laughs> Let's be definitive. Exercise some leadership here, Robin. You can't just wishy-washy your way through life and get anything done, can you? Okay, ready? On your mark, get set, go. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus and Mary were among those at the table. Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Stop right there a second. A parallel uh, gospel, the gospel of Mark, adds this one fact. <clears throat> it tells us that, Jesus, uh, that Mary actually poured all of that perfume over Jesus' head. Um, unsolicited. She just thought it would be a good idea. So, okay. Then she, okay, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Let's go to the word, and she anointed. Let's start there together. And she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she wiped them dry with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. But Judas the locksmith, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke up and said, What a waste! We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor. In fact, Judas had no heart for the poor. He only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case. He would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. She has saved it for the time of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Wow, one thing I thought about. Jesus had an accountant on his staff, but he gave the money to a thief. What does that tell you about Jesus? He... Wasn't really worried about money, was he? <laughs> he trusted his dad to take care of him. Now, this gospel account describes Mary's act of radical love and devotion for Jesus. The perfume was a rare commodity. It's estimated at being worth at least the value of one year's wages. It was probably her life savings, what she would have lived on once she couldn't, I don't know, Lazarus had already died once, he was going to die again. Isn't that interesting? Andy and I were talking about that when God raised Lazarus from the dead, he died another time, so uh, it's pretty interesting to think about that, but Lazarus was looking after Mary and Martha, his two sisters. Mary had accumulated the equivalent of one year's value in an alabaster box which had its own value and she just dumped all of that on Jesus' head. 
Now, I've looked through this and thought about it. This woman's gift that she poured out on Jesus was not celebrated by everyone who witnessed it. So it was not very popular. And if you think about it, have you ever done something out of devotion and found out people criticized you instead of honored you for what you did? Um, that's what happened here. Judas then called it a waste and said it had, could have been used to help the poor. One of the things I've thought about is um, for a number of years I lived in a Christian community and part of our devotion was we paid our bills, gave everything, gave the rest of what we had to the uh, community we were trying to develop. And um, my mother and dad hated the fact that I was doing that. All my relatives that knew about it thought I was crazy. And I had a rich aunt who was going to give me... Um, an inheritance, and she didn't give it to me because she thought I was going to give the money away. And what was going on there was that they thought my life was a waste. Well, they looked at my, my life, they thought, why, why are you wasting your life um, doing what you're doing? And so you have all these opportunities, you know, to get your feelings hurt, develop resentment, to wish you'd done things you hadn't done. But anyway... That's part of what I believe this woman, Mary, was processing when she did this out of a heart of love for Jesus. Um, one gospel tells us that Mary was criticized sharply, and the Barclay translation actually translates that phrase that they snarled their reproaches at her. So if you can picture what's going on to Mary as she just like gives her life away to Jesus. And no one appreciates it. It was uh, socially unacceptable. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. Uh, but the only person in the room that liked it was the only person in the room that mattered, and his name was Jesus. Meanwhile, they're snarling these, these criticisms, uh, criticized sharply, snarling their reproaches, but Jesus defends her. I like that. Jesus said, leave her alone. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to have the kind of life to where Jesus would take up your cause? That's, that's, that's really where we should all be working towards the place where we have such a devotion to Jesus. We have such a connection to Jesus. When people give us a hard time, Jesus gives them a hard time. Is that okay? That's not Christian. Well, it's in the Bible. I can prove it to you eight ways from Sunday. Actually, you may not like this New Testament verse, but it says it's not an unrighteous thing for God to trouble them that trouble you. Do you realize that's in the New Testament? Let me repeat that for those of you who are still in unbelief. The New Testament actually says it's not an unrighteous thing for God to trouble them that trouble you. I sort of like that unless I've got the them and the you backwards. Right? Moving right along. Okay. Jesus defends her. He knew something then no one else knew. He told them, but they wouldn't listen. She had anointed him in advance for his burial that was but a few days away. Now, one of the things I really like about this account is that Mary 
had a relationship with Jesus to where she was an atmosphere changer. Notice that when Mary poured out that sacrificial offering upon Jesus, it really did change the atmosphere. It filled the whole house with his fragrance. That's what a certain level of worship actually does. It changes the atmosphere. You know, one of the things that we really want here, I know Andy's heart. I know the, uh, those on the worship team that uh, I'm, I'm close to. They want the kind of worship that comes out of our hearts that could actually change the atmosphere in this building to where we could sense more of the presence of the Lord. You know, there really, really is a place in worship where you can be transformed. That God makes himself known to you in these mystical ways that touch your heart, change your mind, give you hope give you vision, impart love, all of those things. It's an atmosphere changer. That's really what worship, uh, it's part of what worship is. It's not all. Um, There are some people whose personal devotion to Jesus make them walking atmosphere changers. That is actually what we're all called to be, atmosphere changers. How many of you remember that little character, Pigpen? You know, Pigpen, this little character who did who did that um charles schultz peanuts yeah charles schultz a, a pig pen was so negative he had this cloud that followed him around he was an atmosphere changer it was just changing the atmosphere for the worst and how many of you know negative people and you hate to see them coming because you're going to have to deal with the atmosphere they bring because of their negativity well there's also the opposite that's the counterfeit for what it is to walk in the spirit, to be a positive, hope-filled, love-oriented person who has the potential to carry an atmosphere. I really like that. But that's what we're called to be. So one of the old things that went around a number of years ago, one of the old statements, are we thermostats or thermometers? Are we people that can change things around us Or do we merely, along with almost everybody else, describe the current conditions we find or we see or we feel around us? Let me ask this. Has anybody ever read Facebook for half an hour and felt better after they did it? (laughs) Really? Really? That's a legit question. Really? Why do you feel bad? Because there's all that negativity, hostility, arguing, criticism, debate. That is not good, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I still like to look over there once in a while to see who's mad about what. (laughs) But anyway, we need to be atmosphere changers. But we can't be atmosphere changers unless we develop the right kind of internal life that makes us those kind of people. But that's what Jesus can do for us. Jesus can make us atmosphere changers. Now, I want to uh, I want to take a look at something that I think is very very interesting, and it's this one account. Actually, it's in John before these verses we just read. The text makes a statement that the Mary who poured this 
fragrant um, uh, perfume on Jesus' head was the Mary who was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Now, the reason someone would have to make that account is because in Jesus' close circle of friends, there were five women named Mary. And that is a very odd thing. Um, I, I would I would assume uh, I, I could come up with five people named John that I know, but not five people in my close, you know, and that's a common name. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think it is very rare that a person would have in their close orbit five people who all had the same name. It could happen, but I think it's strange. I think it's odd. I think it's rare. And one of the things I, I understand about the Scripture is um, nothing like that is in the Bible unless it has significance, whether you understand the significance of it or not. Well, that's a different story. But there's so many things we miss in the Bible that are significant, that have messages, that have insights, that can deepen our faith, can deepen our appreciation for the Lord. But we have to have a revelation. God has to show us. And so I've wondered... Why all these Marys? There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary of Magdalene. How many remember her? Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Wouldn't you like to have your name in the, um, you know, Bobby Jones, the man who Jesus cast 12 disciples out of? I mean, 12 disciples. We need to cast some disciples in him. No, cast 12 demons out. What a name. You know, like Rahab the harlot. How would you like to be known that for like the whole rest of eternity? Well, Rahab, I don't guess she cared. But anyway... It was uh, Rahab the redeemed harlot. Never mind. Okay, so there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's who we've been talking about. There was Mary, who was John Mark's mother. John Mark's was Peter's. Peter was John Mark's uncle. And then there was Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Now, you wouldn't know all that unless you had really gotten focused on this whole Mary idea. So I thought, man, that's strange. Five women in Jesus' close circle, all of them have the name Mary. So I began to ask the Lord, why did Jesus have so many people around him with the same name? Okay, who wants to know? Okay, good. Well, to understand why there were so many Marys, we need to know a little bit more about the meaning of the name and its significance in the Old Testament. This will come together in a minute. Mary is the word Mara, and it means bitter. It speaks of being resentful. It speaks of unforgiveness. So Jesus had all these people around him named bitterness. Is that weird? But you know what I think? I think it's a prophetic picture of the world. I think bitterness and unforgiveness is the common malady people have who haven't really done business with the Lord, number one. Number two, Jesus could heal people of their bitterness. Now, let me give you some, some background from the book of Ruth. book of Ruth is a little book over in the Old Testament. How many of you have never read the book of Ruth? Don't be shy. 
Okay, that's right. Let me, since maybe you didn't, how many of you have? Let me see that. Okay, cool. Well, I can't get into all of the profound aspects of it for two reasons. I don't have time and I don't know all of them. But there was a prominent woman named Naomi. Now, Bible names meant something. Naomi means pleasant or full of grace. Pleasant or grace. So Naomi had married a man who had two, and they had two sons. And her husband moved the family away from their home in Bethlehem to the land of Moab because of a bread famine. They planned to stay a short while, but they stayed 10 years and nothing worked out for them. How many of you have made a decision and your world fell apart? Any, anybody that ever happened to? Okay, I would say good, but I don't think that was good. But it's good that you're here this morning because this will help. Nothing worked out for them. Her two sons married Moabite women, which was really not what Jews should do. Her husband died. Then her two sons died. And then Naomi had these two daughter-in-laws, both of them Moabite women. And she decided to return to Bethlehem alone, broken and impoverished, But one of her daughters named Ruth refused to stay behind. Even though Naomi repeatedly tried to keep her to stay back, Ruth decided she was going to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Now, Ruth's name means friend. So we have these two characters. We have Naomi. What does Naomi mean? Pleasant or grace? What does Ruth mean? Ruth means friend. So those names are important. Now, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, and it it caused quite a stir. And I believe it was because when they were in Bethlehem before, they're quite prominent family. And so we find this in Ruth chapter 1, 19 through 21. I'll just read this because I think it's, it's, it's a vital part of what I'm getting to. Now, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara or Mary. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me pleasant since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? And so we see this picture of this woman whose name means pleasant having had such a terrible 10-year period that as far as she's concerned, she wasn't named right. She needed to change her name to Mary because she was bitter and she was broken. Now, In a sense, Jesus being surrounded by so many Marys is a prophetic picture of being surrounded by bitterness. I believe that the abundance of Marys, I've mentioned this before, surrounding Jesus speaks of the plague of bitterness that affected so many people in his day as it does in ours. Now, an interesting prophetic observation from the book of Ruth is that although Naomi became bitter through her difficult life, the Lord placed a Ruth in her life 
who refused to let go of her. Naomi had a friend that refused to leave her. Now, if you know the rest of the book of Ruth, it was um, the fact of Ruth's existence that actually enabled Naomi to become a fully restored, fully blessed person. Here's what we need to realize. Even in her worst circumstance, Jesus had put a friend in her life who had the ability to bring restoration to her. She did not recognize her as that. She did not know that's who she was. She did not know that she could do that. Nevertheless, we do not always see what it is God has for us, who he's put in our life, or who he really is in our lives and who he is to us. He has the power to absolutely restore us no matter what life is taken away. We have a friend in our life. We really do. Jesus is that friend. Jesus is the one who lived in the midst of all those, all those Marys. What does Jesus has the power, have the power to do? To heal us of our bitterness, of our unforgiveness, of our resentment. All of them, every one of them, Jesus can do it. Robin, how can Jesus do it? I don't know. I'm, I'm, sort, of, I'm sort of tired of formulaic Christianity. There's several reasons. I don't know all the formulas, number one. Number two, the ones I know don't work. Pastor, how can I get healed? I don't know. Do you believe in healing? Yes. What kind? All kinds. How does it happen? I don't know. When does it happen? You got me. Jesus does it. I have checked my driver's license. It doesn't say Jesus. Now, here, here's, here's the scary thing. I have been saved all these years, and I still identify areas in my own life of um, resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness. Um, actually, I was teaching. I had a three-hour teaching at a, a school of ministry in town here. And the idea was, how do you dig your, how do you um, dig in your own well? In other words, how do you stay encouraged no matter what goes on? Who would like to know that? Yeah, we well, should have been there. It was awesome. But while I was telling that story, I was I began to talk about you can't let other people tell you who you are, or you can't you you have to know who you are from the Lord, and and then I began to think about the relationship I had with my mother. Um, interestingly enough, her name was Mary Lila, and she was a great mom. I had a great, I had a great childhood. If I didn't turn out good, it wasn't going to be my parents' fault. Nevertheless, we had issues. She was a great mom. She loved me dearly. But because of the nature of our relationship, and this is what popped up this week, Whenever I think of her, it's not about how much she loved me that I first think of. 
It's about how much pressure she put on me to become someone I couldn't be. All she wanted me to do was be very smart, make straight A's, play three sports, be president of my college class, and become a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist. And every time I would take my little pitiful middle school um, report card that didn't have all those A's on it, and I wasn't dumb, but I wasn't going to... First of all, I had an attention deficit disorder. I just didn't know that until recently. I couldn't concentrate. I tried. I was. I, I did well enough because I was smart enough to do well enough without being able to concentrate much. But every time I would take her my report card, she would be ashamed or she would not like it or I would promise her what I knew I wasn't going to do. And see, I come from a, um, both of my, my mom's family, my dad's. My dad's dad was a doctor. He had like a 400-acre farm in Georgia. He was pretty well off. My, in my mother's family, there are these lawyers. I mean, the only level of law they didn't practice was the Supreme Court. I had one aunt who was a heartbeat away from the Supreme Court. She's a federal court judge in D.C. And then there was the healing evangelist, the lunatic Christian community knucklehead who, and, and so I felt that. And I resented, I resented, I resented that. How many of you can feel what I'm saying? I didn't like, I didn't like the pressure to conform. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't make them happy. And so I would just resign myself, sort of, I can't really express it in church language. But the heck with them. I don't do whatever I'm going to do. But I recognized I had this resentment. Well, see, that resentment, that unforgiveness, all of that gets in the way of the flow of God in our lives. It's not okay. But we don't always know what's there. How many of you with me? We don't always know what's there. But I recognized when I was explaining to people about the pressures of growing up, I thought, you know, that stuff really made me mad. That stuff frustrated me. You know, to grow up your whole life, um, I can remember I was preaching on television a number of years ago, and somebody in my mom's community saw it and told her. She said, how long have you been preaching on television? I said, I don't know, about three years. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, every time I started a conversation with you about what I did, you changed the subject, so I quit. I talked about the weather with you. So, but here's some of the things that can help us get through this. First of all, I felt a certain sense of shame. The other thing was the male brain doesn't mature till you're about 27. Bad news, guys. 
you're a knucklehead till you're almost 30. That's just all there is to it. So quit taking yourself so seriously. And yes, you have no idea what's going on. That's why you keep making those stupid mistakes. <laughs> Hang out with somebody who's gone over the 27 hurdle and ask them for help. <laughs> uh, I know that's terrible, but I had to say that. Anyway, um, but I hated the fact that I always disappointed my parents. I never once felt like they thought, go for it. You're awesome. Never felt that. So I had to start getting that from the Lord. But here's what I've determined, and it's helped me release some of that that I didn't recognize was still working on me. I could not be the source for my mother's happiness. Do you understand that? That was her problem, not mine. I couldn't be this person that was going to make her look like the great mom or feel fulfilled or give her bragging rights at the family reunion or however that worked in her life. That was not my job. My job was not to be the source of her happiness. I, and okay, and she worried, you know, why would she want me to be a doctor or lawyer so she wouldn't have to worry about whether or not I could pay my bills? Well, guess what? It's not my job to keep my mom from worrying. That's her job. She needs to grow up and quit worrying, right? How can that be my job if she can't do it? And so I went, oh, okay, that makes sense. I was not the key to her personal fulfillment. Who was? The Lord. The Lord that we had been worshiping in church, my entire family lineage, all the way back before the American Revolution. Seems like we would have gotten that right. After six, seven, eight generations of devout Presbyterian, not putting them down. But here's what I realized, and this is what everybody needs to realize about everybody who's hurt them or messed them up. And if you will hear this, and if you can take it to heart, you will start getting freer and freer. She was doing the best that she could. That was her place in life. That was as far along as she got. That's how she knew what to do. She was doing the best she could. And she did great in a lot of other areas, way better than I deserved. But here's the other thing. She had no idea how the way she related to me was affecting me. We do not know how we hurt people. Do you understand that? We do not know. We can hurt people and feel entirely um, not responsible. Or we can have all these ideas. The key that I believe to forgiveness, please hear this. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do. My mom didn't know how that affected me. She thought what she was doing was for my welfare. But at the end of the day, people don't know what they're doing. The people that hurt you, they didn't know what they were doing. Even if they were malicious, that doesn't mean they knew what that maliciousness would actually, how it would affect your life long term. It's the key to forgiveness. People are doing the best they can. Just give it to them. Don't say, no, they should have done better. Well, okay, let's apply that to your life. You should do better. 
How about if all of us are pretty much doing the best we can every once in a while? We usually hit singles. Maybe every once in a while we get a triple or smack one over the fence, but we ain't used to it because we're doing the best we can. Come on, that's good. Somebody in here ought to be happy about that. We're doing the best we can. Stop holding people to a standard you can't uphold. That's hypocrisy, and that's where your resentment dwells in your demands on other people to do the things when it comes right down to it you couldn't do either. Here's a novel idea. Jesus is the answer. We can give him our bitterness. We can let him unravel like he's been doing with me. All these confusing reasons why we are the way we are. And we can just put our trust in Jesus. We can just trust Jesus. What if my mother had looked at me and said, I think I'm just going to trust Jesus with your life. Do the best you can. I'd have probably tried to do better. That's okay. Here we go. Now, here's the key. When we see Jesus accurately, we start getting healed. We start getting healed. It's when we don't see him accurately that we don't get much better. So, we're going to have communion this morning. And I want to, uh, I want to invite Thomas Torrey up this morning. Communion is a great opportunity. Some of you sitting there, I'm not going to get a show of hands because I don't, it, this is not for me. This is really for you. But think about it. How many of you have something in that whole resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness realm that, that you just want to acknowledge and deal with? Yeah, please, please by, by not raising your hand, if you do not raise your hand, it means you have something like that. <laughs> My goodness, it's the entire church. Wow. Well, I, here's the thing I saw. The Lord started unraveling this for me. My mom's been dead, gosh, 11 years, maybe 12. And we loved each other deeply, but that didn't mean we didn't have issues. But I see the Lord, he wants to unravel this thing for us. He wants us to be free. He wants us to say, Lord, I forgive my mom. I just forgive her. She was doing the best she knew. She didn't understand I wasn't her answer that you were. She didn't realize that I couldn't keep her from worrying no matter what I did. I just release all that, Lord. I forgive. I renounce resentment. I renounce unforgiveness. I receive Forgiveness from you, Lord. I receive cleansing. Lord, we're going to receive your body and your blood this morning as an act of our trust in you. So thank you so much that you love us. And here is Thomas. Thank you. Um, that's awesome. I was, I've, I led this once before a few months ago, and I was moved to add a new component to the, the uh, couple prayers I'm going to lead us in this morning. We're going to lead us in some ancient liturgical prayers.
But uh, what I did last time was a small distillation of a much longer prayer. And one thing I wanted to add this morning was a prayer of repentance. Um, so that's awesome. But that's the Lord's really doing doing that with us this morning. Um, again, we don't do form for form's sake, right? The form of communion and even the form of the liturgical prayers. We do it for what it reveals to us, what it builds within us, how it unifies us in a tactile, physical way. And if there is no spirit that inhabits the form, it is formless and void and empty. So, Father, inhabit this form this morning. Um, again, I'm going to read a couple of the prayers and just kind of contextualize them along the way. Um, Communion is a sacrament. And what is a sacrament? It's simply a consecrated thing, something that is made holy, but it's specific to created things, to matter, to things of the earth, but also words and thoughts. Everything, every created thing has the potential to be sacramentalized, to be lifted up, to be made holy, and to be returned as something life-giving. Our bodies our thoughts, our words, the work of our hands, bread and wine that a baker and a winemaker made. It's a miracle. It's a miracle when we lift something up, Christ touches it. He makes it holy and he sends it back down to be shared among us as something life-giving. Sacrament needs three things. It needs the matter the words, the thoughts. It needs the created thing. It needs a priest to lift it up and it needs the spirit of Christ to consecrate it. Now, don't get uneasy when I say it needs a priest to lift it up. I'm not talking about the ordained priest who has a master's of divinity. I believe a lot in the role of the priesthood, but we are all priests. We are all the living priesthood. We are all invited to lift the things of the earth up. So I stand before you in the role of the priest, to lift it up just like you every day are invited to be priests of yourselves, of your family, of the work of your hands. So listen to the poetry of these ancient and beautiful prayers of consecration. This water is poured into this cup, the chalice of salvation, recalling the water which flowed from the side of the Son of God, May the mingling of this water and wine, which are now inseparable, remind us that Christ is being joined to our humanity and our humanity is being joined to his deity, never to be separated. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread in his hands and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this as a remembrance for me. I want to say something really quickly about what a remembrance is. A remembrance is a specific ancient Hebrew concept. We think of it merely as a reminder. And it is that, but that is, that isn't the full story. That isn't the full definition of what a remembrance is. A remembrance has covenantal implications. 
a reminder's a ding on my iPhone. A remembrance has covenantal implications where God, because a covenant is an exchange between God and us, invites us into a proactive exchange back with him. So when he floods the earth and he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, I will never do this again, that rainbow is a remembrance. The ancient Hebrews understood that to be a remembrance. And he said, whenever you see this, I'm reminding you to remind me of my covenant. When he told the Hebrews to slaughter a lamb and put the blood above their doorpost so the angel of death would pass over them, that blood lifted up was a remembrance. Reminding whoever had that above their door was spared from death. So God to the ancient Hebrews was giving them remembrances, which were covenantal implications of a reminder for what God has promised. So when Jesus tells his disciples, do this as a remembrance to me, his disciples in that moment say, whoa, something Something big's going on right here. So just remember that whenever we hear the word, it's a reminder, but it is so much deeper because of the covenant he has invited us into. Likewise, after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as remembrance to me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to his banqueting table. Lord, we are not worthy to receive you, but if you only say the word, we shall be healed. And now I want to lead us in this prayer of repentance. Because repentance, like Eucharist, like communion, is also a sacrament. We lift the words of our lips, the confession of our lips, up to God, and then a miracle happens. The miracle of forgiveness, the miracle of absolution. Traditionally, we, there would be a prayer that we could all say together because there's something unifying about all saying the same thing together. I won't do that today. I'll just read it. I'll just say it. And I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you are in agreement, just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And think about, yes, the sins of your week, where you messed up, where we got it wrong. But think of everything that Robin has just spent the last 30 minutes saying. The areas of unforgiveness that we hold in our hearts toward others. Repent from that. Repent from the things that we carry with us. The resentment we carry with us. The standards we hold others that we cannot live to. And if you want to be free from it, if you want the miracle of absolution of forgiveness, then just agree with this prayer. I confess to almighty God, father, son, and Holy spirit. And to you, brothers and sisters, beloved of God, that I have sinned and I have sinned exceedingly. And I've done it in thought, in word and deed. And I've done it by my own fault. And I ask almighty God to have mercy on me, to forgive me for my sins. And I ask you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord, our God. And the priest says this. And remember, we all have the power to say this to each other. So don't shy away from the invitation to say these words to each other. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. There is no record of wrong. 
The ledger is wiped clean. Absolution is yours. Amen. I'm going to come down. I'm going to invite my wife, Amanda, up, and I'll leave this station. We'll have two stations here with wine and bread, and these two stations have grape juice, and the furthest one has gluten-free bread. One is no less holy or more consecrated than the other. Amen? I love when Andy led last, and he used Fritos and Wonder Bread. And then afterwards, he was all insecure. Like, oh, no, what are you going to think, Thomas? I love that, because all created things can be sacramental. They can, they can be lifted up. So there's, uh, there's nothing more or less sacred about wine over grape juice. Um, and then I invite you parents, if you have kids in the back, take an extra piece for them. And be a priest to them. Give it to them. And tell them this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And lead them in a prayer of repentance. Be their priest. Parents, we are called to be priests to our kids, certainly when they're in the stages, even if they can't fully understand it, if they don't even fully understand what is a sin, what is repentance, the invitation is yours to be their priest. So do that. I invite you to do that if you're led. Take some extra and give it to your kids. Come and receive. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.